Hi guys, um, welcome to the Hub Tent. I'm Adrienne. I live at the Hub and I'll be living there next year. If you have any questions about college, university, we're a chaplaincy um, at Queen's and Ulster. And uh, we also have student accommodation. So if you have any questions about any of that, anybody in a blue t-shirt that looks like this, ask them. Um, so today's talk is by Lauren. <laughs> um, Guys, big round of applause, come on. <laughs> um, and today she's going to be talking about lessons a drug addict can teach you. So, good luck with that. <laughs> um, so I just want to pray for you, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, dear Lord, thank you that we're all together here today. Um, thank you for the platform that you provide for us and for Lauren. Thank you that Lauren is able to come here today to speak to us. We welcome you today, Lord, with us. And we just ask you to bless the conversations that are had between the young people and um, bless what Lauren has to say today, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Adrienne, not Adrienne. Don't make that mistake. She doesn't like it. So just a quick warning. Um, I am going to start off with some audience participation. Yay, everyone's favorite. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Um, what, I want to ask you guys what you understand of addiction. Right, so if I say the word addiction to you, like what comes up in your... Am I, I'm assuming, are you like semi-in? Are you... Yeah, okay. You're just going to have to shout loud if you've got something to chip in, okay? Because you chose the sofas, so you did that. Okay, <laughs> good. So if I ask you guys what... What's the, what's the first word or first thing that comes to your mind when we talk about addiction? All-consuming. Okay, that's good. All-consuming. Okay. Anything? What can you be addicted to? Drugs. Drugs. Yep, drugs are bad. Anything else? Alcohol. Yep. Also a drug, but not an illicit one. Yep. Is that it? That's the only things we can be addicted to. It's all, hey, your phone. You can be addicted to your phone. Anything else come to mind? Hey, doesn't say sugar, but it should say sugar. Anything else? Okay, if that, and I get no one really likes to shout out, if that's what we're working with as a base level, I've got a lot I'm going to share with you. So that's nice. It's nice to know that there's, there's room, there's room to share. Um, so basically, if you, all consuming is really good because, and we'll come on to that, because that is effectively what happens when you become addicted to something. It becomes all-consuming to you. And the sort of things you can be addicted to are, for sure, your phone, technology, gaming, gambling, sugar, alcohol, drugs, any substance. Basically, it's anything that makes you feel good, right? And that's a really basic way of saying it. In your brain, there are, like, 
neurotransmitters that do different things to your mood. So dopamine is a motivational gene. It picks you up, it makes it propels you forwards, it makes you want to do things. Serotonin is a gene that creates feelings of happiness, right? And these things boost those in you temporarily. Uh, actually, that's not quite right. Most of those things, some drugs are depressants and they do something different in your body. So effectively, if it's something you enjoy, there's scope to be addicted to it. And that's really broad. And in sort of addiction and addictive related fields, experts would say you can only be addicted to something that's a chemical, so a substance. So that would be just these two, none of those, none of some of the other things I'm going to talk about. So there is contention around that. My feeling is that if it follows the same pattern as it does with a drug or alcohol addiction, then that's just semantics. And you can call it what you like, but what you're struggling with is effectively an addiction, and it can be treated in the same way as addiction as well. Right, so thank you very much. i not going to ask you to do anything again for a bit. I'll do the work for a bit. But then I'm going to ask you to ask questions. And if you don't, I'll just pick on people. So start generating. I'm joking. I'm, well, I might. I'll definitely pick on Rachel because I know her. So that's not mean. Um, okay, so when I googled addiction... I um, came up with this. Addiction is a condition in which the body must have a drug to avoid physical and psychological withdrawal symptoms. I think that's fine. I don't think that that's the definition of addiction. And I think that when we're talking in a, in a Christian, in a spiritual context, what addiction is, is a, it's a spiritual void that someone is trying to fill and they don't quite know how to. Um, also, it's worth noting, right, that when it comes to an addiction, it's, the addiction itself is not the problem. It's the solution to the problem. And it's the wrong solution, but that's, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit has shown up. That is just affirmation of what I've been saying. We tear this place down in rage. <laughs> um, no, so... If somebody's struggling with a problem and they are finding it hard to cope with, it do doesn't even necessarily need to be consciously. There are many different mechanisms that they can turn to to address the way that they're feeling. And addiction is one. And it's not a good one, but it is one. So actually, if you're, if you're talking to someone or you're concerned yourself that you're struggling with an addiction, that is not your problem. That is your poorly chosen solution. And I think that that's a really important thing to remember. Um, effectively, I think everyone can relate to the feeling of being addicted, not in the sort of all-consuming way that we were talking about, but everyone understands what it's like to make a choice that they don't, that doesn't really serve them long term, that isn't sort of in line with what they want for themselves. And there's this whole passage that who's good at the Bible? Paul wrote in Corinthians. Can you Google it? Why do I do the things I don't want to do and I do, don't do the things I do want to do? It's all, it's all that, right? So it's, it's like Paul, and basically no one really knows what Paul was talking about when he said, like, why do I continuously choose to do things that I don't want to do? But when I know what I should be doing, this is a paraphrase, um, I know what I should be doing and then I choose not to do those things, right? That, that effectively 
is the crux of addiction, but it's over and over again. It's constant. It's all-consuming. What it effectively is, right, is all of these things, say these four that we've got on here, your phone, sugar, alcohol, and drugs, right? I'm going to make the bold assumption that everyone in this room has a phone and eats sugar. Some people don't eat sugar, but let's just say, for argument's sake, then I'm also going to make the bold assumption that only the people over 18 have ever drunk alcohol. Okay, we'll just say that for the sake of, you know of this. And then I'm also going to make the assumption that no one here has taken drugs. Again, I, you know, whether you have or haven't is another conversation. But let's just say, in that case, we've got a scale. Down here is abstinence. And then here's like healthy use. And then it's like, oh, maybe I'm doing a bit too much of this. Oh, this is actually getting to be a problem. Bam, up here, right at the top of that scale is addiction. So let's say you're a person who's under 18 and you've not drunk or tried drugs. So you're right down here with those things. But maybe like you eat some sugar, you don't, you're not that fussed about sugar. So you're like somewhere here, you're kind of moderate with your sugar use, but you are always on your phone and you're like up here. Any of these things, you can plot yourself on this scale. And actually, it's good to do that exercise, to ask yourself, like, okay, what are the things that I know I enjoy, that I know can become idols, that I know can get a hold of me, and plot them on that scale from, I don't touch them sometimes, but I'm, like, I'm okay with it, I'm pretty moderate, all the way up to this is completely out of control. Because also, these things change as well. It's not like right now you've got a really healthy relationship with sugar, and that's just going to be how it is the rest of your life. You, you need to keep an eye on what it is that you're turning to in moments where you're feeling hungry, happy, sad, lonely, bored, tired, because it's in those moments that you find out what your mechanisms are, what your mechanisms are. And that's a good way of managing idols and idolatry, but also of tracking addictive behaviors and seeing if you're moving up towards that place. So a few little bits and pieces of myths about addiction that I think it's really important to explain before we get further into this, because people have really funny ideas about addiction, which is kind of why we played that game. Um, where we were talking about, like, you know, what it is you could be addicted to and what addiction actually looks like. Um, I think it's really important to say that it's not just boys and men who get addicted to pornography. It's like every time we gender divide and all the women go off there, they learn about hospitality or something. And then the men, are, like, all the blokes are told about sort of porn and masturbation and blah, blah, blah. Actually, statistically... 70% of men in the church are regularly watching porn and 30% of women. So that's one in three. You know, it is, it is just as, as possible, as likely that women, girls are watching porn. Well, it's not just as, as likely, but it is, it's a huge proportion. So there's no point just speaking to one sex about that. Other thing is um, lots of people think that to have a food addiction, you need to be like, you know, like clinically overweight. And that's not the case at all. There are plenty of people who have a really unhealthy relationship with food who are underweight, who are an absolutely normal weight. It doesn't necessarily relate to the way that you look. Um, you don't have to lose your job or all your money or lose your friends or lose your home for alcohol to be a problem. 
You know, there are people who who never actually lose those tangible things in their lives, but who are problem drinking every day, and it's causing them other very big problems. Um, drug addicts aren't just people who sleep on the streets, who don't really wash, who might shout at you or sit by the cash point whilst you're going into Tesco's. Like, we've got this idea that it's, it's a rough sleeper. It's someone with a, you know, paper bag that they're drinking alcohol out of and stuff like that. That's, that's what addiction looks like. That's where it is. And that's just not the case. Addiction looks like absolutely anyone. It is the great leveller. It doesn't matter what race, religion, socioeconomic group, what sex you are, it really doesn't make a difference. It could look like, you know, Rachel over there with her lovely blonde hair. No offence, Rachel. <laughs> it, you know, it could look like any of the, the guys on team, any one of you sitting here. It could look like me. And it does look like me. So I've been clean and sober from drug and alcohol addiction for nine years, right? And I thought that I thought that I had found a solution to my problems in drinking and taking drugs. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, and then we'll talk about what that means for you guys. Um, so I was raised going to church, and at 13, I was given the choice whether or not I carried on going, because 13 is kind of like you know, you're old enough to stay home, you're kind of making your own choices now, you know, it's up to you. And I was like, great, I'm definitely not going to church, thank you so much for, having, for giving me the choice, off you go on a Sunday and I'll stay here. And it was around that time that I started to be introduced to alcohol as well. And I get the impression it's slightly harder to get hold of alcohol as a 13-year-old these days, but to be honest, like where there's a will, there's a way, I reckon. So I'm sure that everyone would know how to if they wanted to, right? So I start drinking quite heavily. And for my peer group, for my friends, that was totally normal. So to drink to the point of throwing up was just normal. That's what we did. We're kids, you know, like we don't really know our limits. We just go out and sit in the park and get, you know, whatever booze we can get our hands on and we drink. And that's kind of what I did for a few years. And for me, that became my solution because when I turned up to social events, when I saw friends, I felt incredibly anxious. And I wouldn't have known what social anxiety was at the time. There wasn't really that much language for stuff like that, like early noughties we're talking. As soon as I say dates, people always try to do like mental maths to find out how old I am. I'm 34, just to save you guys the time. Okay, now you can get back to concentrating on what I'm saying. Um, so we would, we would go out, we would get drunk, and, and I would turn up and be like, oh my gosh, I just wish that I could like not feel this, this anxiety. I'm, I really want to be popular. I really want to be liked. I really want people to think I'm fun. I really want to be like life and soul of this party. And, and suddenly when I drank, it's not like I didn't want those things anymore. It wasn't that I felt anxious. I just didn't need to think about them. So I would have a couple of drinks and then another couple of drinks and whatever, whatever, as much as I could get my hands on. I was smoking at this point as well, had various boyfriends, and that was my way of being like fun, being like life and soul of the party. So we rolled on a few years, and then I went to university. Now, university is designed for drinking. Every single social event 
is advertised with the cost of how much a shot will cost when you get to that bar, right? It's like, have a full week without lectures because you're going to be too hungover to turn up whilst you're settling in. So if I was hiding in plain sight before... I suddenly had like found my people, you know? And again, drinking was so encouraged. It was so part of the culture. If you weren't drinking, people thought you were a bit weird. You know, it was just, it felt like, okay, great. But I drank more than other people around me. And I drank more consistently than other people around me. And I had a lot of repercussions of my drinking, like missing lectures. Again, though, you know, what university student doesn't miss lectures? It's all still quite funny and consistent. And, you know, who's got a problem with that? No one's, no one's going, oh, you're an alcoholic. You've missed a lecture at university because of drinking. Plain sight, best place for an, for an alcoholic to be camouflaged is at university. And I... Um, I started dating someone who had his own problems, his own drug addiction. He's now in recovery himself. He went in a few years after me. And we had this massively codependent relationship. And by that, I mean that we were unhealthily tethered together. Um, and his decisions and his life, I was completely controlled by. And then he broke up with me. And when I tell this story, I always say up until about last year. I always say he broke up with me on my 22nd birthday, but I got my, I found my diaries and it was actually like eight days later. So I have to repent of that. <laughs> it wasn't my exact birthday, but it was my birth week-ish. And that's, you know, a special time. So it's still not very nice. Um, but he broke up with me around the time I turned 22. And I was left and I'd, I'd just finished university. So the sort of safety net of knowing what I was doing with my time, I'd just finished this relationship where I thought my whole life was planned out for me as his wife, as, you know, the mother of his kids and, and all of that. I was like, I'm set, that's fine. And the rug was pulled under me and I felt like I had nothing. So I got a job in hospitality, worked as an events manager for a group of restaurants in London. And in that industry, it's work hard, play hard. And that was perfect because I still wanted to be the party girl. I still wanted people to see me and be like, oh my gosh, she's so fun. Invite Lauren. She brings the party. She'll dance on the table. She's, she'll do shots with you. She'll be the last one up. So hospitality industry was ideal for me. And I was going out maybe like four nights a week, which is very hard to sustain um, when you've also got a job. And then someone offered me some cocaine. And I was like, yeah, what else have I got going on? I didn't have church, didn't have a church community, wasn't into the whole God thing that my family was still into. So I took, took this line of cocaine and I didn't love it, but I was like, okay, well, cool, you know, bucket list, I've ticked it off. You know, everyone should try it once, like, oh, so fun. And I won't bother again. But then the next time someone offered me it and I was like, yeah, right. Go on then. And I remember as I was walking to the toilet, I was like, I wonder why you're doing this when you didn't really like it. I don't really know why, but I still carried on doing it. And very quickly things spiraled out of control for me. So I went from taking it like once on the weekend to three times during the week to five times during the week to spending huge amounts of money to getting into really dangerous situations, getting into cars with strangers because they had coke. I started getting um, physical problems with, um, 
with like my processing. I was a 22 year old who couldn't remember anything. Like if you phoned me and then five minutes later you said, oh, what did we talk about on the phone? I probably wouldn't even remember that my phone had rung. If I hadn't written it down on a post-it note, I was getting nosebleeds. I got like um, floaters in front of my, thing, my eyes, like the little dots that you get and um, numbness in my fingers and toes. And I, I got like a facial twitch. Um, and a lot of that is because of how much I was drinking, but also from like nosebleeds and stuff is from cocaine. Uh, I wasn't really opening my mail. I didn't really wash properly. I didn't really wash my clothes. My whole focus was on maximizing my time taking drugs. That was it. That was what I wanted for myself. And I would wake up in the morning and I'd feel so guilty and so ashamed of myself. And I wouldn't have slept properly because you can't really sleep when you've taken most drugs. Cocaine, you can't really. Um, and I'd feel awful and I'd be like, no, I'm not doing this again. But the resolve of the morning leaves you so quickly when it gets darker in the evening. There's something about the nighttime and it's gone. And I just kept going. And I kept going for years. And I was in this desperate spiral where I wasn't spending time with anyone who was good for me. And I was just surrounding myself with people who encouraged me in my using, right? Then I, yeah, that's enough of the bad stuff. Is there anything bad else bad I want to tell you? No, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> that, I've made my point. <laughs> so the issue with addiction, right, is, um, you know, in those cartoons where you've got like the devil on your shoulder and the angel on your shoulder and you're like having that sort of conversation. I mean, that's a very sort of cartoon character way of thinking about it, but it is a helpful illustration because it's basically you versus you. Oh, sorry. That's just another particularly powerful Holy Spirit moment. Um, yeah, it's you versus you, right? And actually, what I found was when I fought myself, I lost. Because the second I got in the ring, the second I was like, okay, no, I'm not going to do it this time. And then the other part of me was like, well, you probably are. And I'd be like, no, no, I'm really not going to. This time I'm going to hold my resolve and be really strong. And the other side of me would be like, yeah, but why don't we just start that tomorrow? Because right now we should probably just take some drugs. And I was like, well, you know, he has got a point. And then that whole thing would just start all over again. And every day was the next day. Um, I eventually told my sister, and in the sort of prodigal situation, she's the one who stayed, and I'm the one who left. So she carried on going to church. She was still really invested um, in all of that stuff. Thanks, Muffin Johnny. That's super kind. <laughs> um, so I told her I was taking coke. I said, I need your help. I asked her if there was anything she could do to help me get out of that situation. And she said, yeah. And she moved me into her house and she took me to church. And then um, she sent me into work on the Monday with a pre-typed resignation letter for me to leave my job because there was a lot of drugs around at my job. Uh, I didn't get the church thing and my sister was fuming. She was like, God, you say when someone reaches out to you, you reach back. Why aren't you reaching back? She's here. She's listening. Why are you not like... Why are you not bringing her in? You know, why are you not changing her life? Why are you not doing anything? Um, 
but it just wasn't my time. It just didn't feel right. I thought that they were kind of nice people, maybe a little weird, um, super friendly, but just not my people, you know? It made sense in my head, but it didn't sink into my heart. So I carried on doing what I was doing, basically. And I, I moved away from London, carried on drinking quite heavily, and then, um, but wasn't taking drugs at that time. And then I met someone who dealt drugs. And that's when my friends were like, no. You can't keep doing this. You've moved out of London. You've made all these big changes just so that you'll stop taking drugs. And we can see that this spiral is about to happen again. So we, we don't want that for you. We want you to go to a support group meeting. And I was fuming because, like, you know, get out of my business. I'm just having a good time. You know, I just like to party every now and again. Yeah, I've ruined a few of your nights out. Ruined your birthday. Do we have to keep talking about it? They insisted that I went to this group and I thought, I'm going to go, but literally just so they stop bothering me. This will buy me a couple of months, right? So I turn up at this meeting and this is when I think God kicked in. And I'm sure God was there beforehand. I'm sure he was like in it and like protecting me. I don't think it was what he wanted for my life. Um, but this is where God kicked in. And I stood by the door and I could hear people talking behind the door and I was like... I really shouldn't be here. This just isn't the right place for me. So I turned and there was a lift here and some stairs here. And I went to walk down the stairs to leave and the lift doors open and this woman stepped out and she said, are you here for this meeting? And I was like, oh, I mean, sort of, but actually I just don't, when I think about it, I don't know if, and she was like, okay, great. You can sit next to me. And she just grabbed my arm and she took me in. And usually in meetings, which are support groups for drug addicts, there's often a lot of men, and it's often men who are sort of in their 50s, right? Walked into this room full of six, six women, all in their 20s, all about three months sober. And I thought, okay, they've got something I want. They were so free. They had... I remember one of them turned to me, right, and said, do you know I moisturize every day now? Like to most people, that's like, yeah, so who cares? That's not a big deal. Like some people do, some people don't. For me, that felt like everything because I never took the time to look after myself. I was too busy being drunk, being hungover to do any sort of basic self-care. And I just, when I heard that story, I was like, it's not even a story, it's a sentence. I was like, oh my gosh, that could be my life. And at that time, that's all I could bring myself to want was just a person who got up at a normal time in the morning, put moisturizer on and went out and lived their life, right? That was, that was my hope. That was my prayer. And the third meeting, someone said to me, you, um, you've got to work out who your higher power is, right? Because you need to have a higher power. So three days in, someone's gone like, okay, who's God to you? because it can't be you. And I was like, okay, no, okay, I'm not God then, fine. Um, what's God, what's God? And I was like, look, the last time I remember there being a God, I was in church. So I'm going to go to a church. And if that doesn't work, I'll do what every other person in recovery does and become a yoga instructor. But I'll start with church, right? So I turned up, I went to the front and I said to them, like, um, at the end, they said, oh, do you want prayer? And I marched straight up to the pastor and he was American and really larger than life. And he was like, you know, what's, you know, what can I pray for you? And I was like, I'm five days clean and sober from drug and alcohol addiction. Um, can you pray for me? And he was like, 
yeah, 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 just take a seat, um, bear with me. And then he brought this other couple round and they like lay hands, so like emergency prayer procedure had been activated, like laying hands, like, can you repeat after me, this and that, and oh, I've sinned and I love you, Jesus, Jesus come into my life. And I was like, this is weird, okay, whatever he needs, that's fine. So I did it, I repeated this prayer back. And um, they invited me to this women's Bible study and they really took me under their wing. They showed me, um, they showed me what community was like. And they showed me what connection was like and what it was like to be valued and to be wanted and to be cared for. And, and that's actually something I hadn't felt. I just didn't like myself very much. And I didn't feel like I was really worthy of that level of care and attention. And that, that's why I chose short-term interests over what served me long-term. And I didn't care that I was doing it because I didn't feel that I was worth any more than what I was showing myself and actually what a lot of the people around me were showing me too because I wasn't surrounding myself with good people. I feel like that those truly were my prayers just to like be a normal person who put moisturizer on in the morning and who like just has some semblance of a life that wasn't shrouded in shame and misery. Someone who you'd be happy to like leave your kids with because no one was happy to leave their kids with me when I was a drinking and, and a drug addict, right? I have built myself into this cage one brick at a time I'd kept making the wrong choice. And low down, that choice is kind of easy, you know, to choose right or wrong. But as you keep building, it gets harder and harder to make a good decision. And eventually you're trapped. And you can't see over this, the side of this cage, this wall that you've built in front of yourself. You can, you can barely see anything. I wouldn't have known what to pray for. I wouldn't have known what God could do for me because all I wanted was so basic, you know? And if God had just answered my prayers, I'd just, I would have woken up this morning and put a bit of cocoa butter on and gone about my day. But God has brought me so much more since I got involved in his church and in his service. And, the tra and I know that Pippa did an amazing job of talking about how she's found her life changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. The difference in me is night and day. I had dinner with someone I was at university with the other night. And someone who they hadn't met before was like, oh, well, tell me what Lauren was like at university. And she was like, horrible, horrible. She's totally different. Had no patience. I was uptight. I was controlling. I felt fear in everything because I was so desperate to be liked and to control, but I didn't know how to do it. And I have none of that now. Genuinely none of that. You know, if I was afraid about what people thought of me, I wouldn't stand up in front of you guys and talk about like, cocaine addiction would I but it's important we need to have these conversations um when it comes to identifying addiction in your own lives if it's a problem it's a problem and that sounds really basic we can spend ages going through questionnaires and and stuff like that if there's a problem it is a problem and you should deal with it and if your friends are telling you your family's telling you if it's coming in between your relationship with the people around you the people in your community at school at university at church if it's coming in between your relationship with yourself, your relationship with God, that is a problem. And, and what you do about that, there are varying levels. Um, the first thing you should do is, can I just get a time check, Rach? Half past. Okay, cool. I'm going to do this for another five minutes, and then it's question time. So be thinking. Um, 
if you think that you may be struggling with a problem, the first thing you should do is ask for help. People think that asking for help is weak. It's saying, I can't do this on my own. That is the strongest thing I've ever heard anyone say, is help me. We're not designed to live in isolation. We are not designed to tackle things like this on our own. It's too big. I know hundreds, thousands of people in recovery from addictions. I don't know a single person who did it on their own, in their room, away from other people. It is really important that you get support, both physically from someone who's there for you, to hold your hand, to sit with you, to pray with you, but also that spiritual support of people. Like, I really do believe that makes, you know, prayer makes such a big difference. Um, there are so many different groups, so many different church groups, so many different things which are there to, to help you. There are charities that you can reach out to, particularly there are young people charities that are there, your youth leaders, your church. There's got to be someone you trust. And honestly, there is nothing wrong with going to them and saying like, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure if I've got this right, if I've got a good relationship with this, if I need to make a change in my life. You know, that is... That is a really healthy thing to do. That is a good choice for yourself. Um, next, if you're worried about a friend, there are a few things you can do. Yeah, you pray. Yes, you can approach them and say, hey, look, I'm a, I'm a little bit concerned. It seems like you're not making great choices, that you're making choices that serve you, make you happy in the short term, but long term, aren't doing you any good, can we talk about it? You know, like, can I help? That is okay, that is a good thing to do. Um, it's also okay if that seems to make absolutely no difference, because often it won't, it really won't, and that's a shame. But just as, you know, an addict or I built that wall of bricks, right, one bad decision at a time, you're building a wall of recovery for them. And one brick putting down doesn't make a wall, right? but you need each of those and other people will say things and other people will offer, offer support and maybe down the line you can say another thing. You can put another brick down, but we need each of those bricks. I remember every time someone challenged me on my behavior. I remember when my friend who hates church said to me like, mate, do you think you should go to church? And I laughed in her face, but I logged it. It was a brick. I logged it. Whereas, but from her, her perspective She's just really annoyed me and I've laughed at her and then she's walked away, you know. But actually, I'm still here, what, 15 years later telling you that story? It mattered. It really, really mattered. And you can make a difference that way. But basically, what you want to say to someone is, I love you. I'm here for you. I know this is going to take a long time. I'm not going anywhere, but you have to make a decision to help yourself because no one else can do this for you. That's how you want to speak to somebody who needs support. Um, in terms of protecting yourself, right, the most, the sort of biggest growing group of addicts in the UK are middle-aged women with drinking. So it's not that, like, you know, you get to 25 and you haven't had any problems and blah, blah, blah. That's great. And we pray and speak in that, that you will always be in that place. But it is possible for things to develop down the line as you're exposed to new things, as you're exposed to new opportunities to try new things and stuff like that, right? Um, you can protect yourself with, with basically emotional resilience. And what that means is, and this is really hard, and if you can do this, you're basically more 
emotionally intact than I'd say 95% of the population. But when you feel something hard, when you go through a breakup or a disappointment or, or anything that really throws you off or there's family trouble or something at school, whatever, if you can sit with it, if you can go, okay, this hurts and that's okay, it's a hurtful thing. If you can acknowledge that emotion and not try and shut it out, just let yourself feel it, invite God into it. Invite him into that moment of difficulty, into that moment of lament and sit with him there rather than demanding he takes you out of it. Invite him to sit with you in it. You will come out of that situation stronger, knowing him better and far more able to cope. That is the solution to difficult emotions. And that's a, you know, dealing with difficult emotions is like a whole nother probably week-long festival of its own, right? But just as a basic crash course, if your solution is to distract yourself with something that makes you feel good short-term, like it was mine, that's not going to serve you. It's not going to give you the tools you need. Whereas if you can sit with it, you can invite God into it, that's what we want when it comes to processing pain. And that's how you protect yourself from turning to the wrong things later down the line. Why does this matter? This matters because Jesus died, right? Not like, yes, he died for all of us. But it's really easy to look at your friends and be like, oh, yeah, if I was Jesus, I would have died for you too. You're really great. Jesus died literally for you as an individual, as a person, on your own, if you were the only person who he had to die to save, he would have done it again, right? He died so that you can have complete freedom. Complete freedom. That's it. That's a price he's paid. There's no receipt to return that. It's there. Whether you pick it up and take it or you leave it down there and you leave yourself trapped in captivity doesn't make a difference to the fact that he's done it for you. You must take that. That is the biggest gift anyone's ever going to give you in your life. He has died so that you can walk freely, not so you can hand over that freedom to a substance or food or something on a screen. You have that freedom and you will be so much more at peace if you walk in it and if you hold yourselves accountable when enjoying the things of this world. And some of those things you're better off abstaining from genuinely, like 100% of people who've not tried cocaine don't become cocaine addicts. That is the best way to protect yourself from becoming a drug addict. Just don't go near it. But there'll be some things that you want to enjoy in moderation, a glass of wine, a beer, right? I'm not saying you can't ever drink. I'm just saying that it's important to recognize that these things can get out of hand and you are valuable, you are worth it and you do not want to be trapped in something when God has so many bigger plans for you in your life. So that's why I want you to know what this stuff looks like, to be able to push back against it when you feel it's coming and to feel confident that you know that there's a plan of action, that there's other people who've gone before you who've worked through this and you can too. Um, I would love questions if there are any. I've not got a good track record with people asking questions at this festival. So let's see how we go. I'm coming. Am I coming? Oh my goodness, I think I'm coming. Hang on. <laughs> oh yeah, that's thanks to Johnny. <laughs> okay, hi, was it you? Yeah. 
how do you deal with like relapsing or the temptation to relapse once you've made the decision to go sober or to kind of take it out of your life? How do you deal with like the temptation to go back or relapsing with it, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, specifically for me, yeah. as an okay, uh, how would I deal with relapse? Right, so f at first, when I gave up drinking and I made the decision to do that, I felt like I was liable to relapse. This is fun, isn't it? <laughs> I felt like I was liable to relapse at any moment. I felt like I was like clinging on to sobriety with white knuckles, like not quite sure if I was going to make it to the next day, like going to bed at kind of 8.30 just so I could claim that I had a full day. And I was like, great, that's done, you know? I don't need to risk being up any later. But slowly it got easier. And, and basically what happened for me is um, it's not that the good angel on my shoulder, if we're going to keep using that analogy, just kept winning. It's that I didn't, I didn't join the fight, right? Because if I fight the, the worst parts of myself, the worst parts of myself win. But if I let God fight for me, I don't lose ever. So that's... That's the decision I made. I haven't relapsed since that day. It was the 22nd of April, 2014, and I never relapsed on drugs or alcohol. Um, and I think that partly that's because I threw myself into recovery. Every hour I spent drinking and taking drugs, I spent on my recovery. If I had that much time before, then I've got that much time to invest in something good. Um, but relapse is common in addiction. And I don't take anything for granted. I like I know plenty of people who. So that I run a recovery program, and there's a quite a well-known story that that we talk about. Is there was a guy who was asked to come and speak at the recovery course, not my one, one that someone else is running. Who was on his bike? He pulled up at traffic lights, looked to his right, and the car next to him was his old drug dealer. And he relapsed. He didn't turn up to do the talk. He'd been years sober, didn't turn up to do the talk. Uh, three days later, they found him dead in someone's garden, right? That's a horrific story, but I don't take my recovery for granted a single day. There will never be a time where I'll describe myself as recovered. I am recovering by the grace of God because I stay away from alcohol and drugs. If I was recovered, I'd happily have a glass of wine with you at dinner tonight. But I can't do that because I just, I just cannot fathom the idea of not getting drunk and not picking up drugs if I had alcohol. So for me, it has to be complete abstinence. And that is how I stay in freedom. I'm not trapped by it. I'm free because now I have the the opportunity to choose not to, whereas before all I could do was choose to take it. So that's that's it, you know. Um, relapse isn't inevitable, but it's you know it's something to be taken really seriously. And I don't think anyone's ever out of the woods, but you can protect yourself. Any? What's the time? I've got five minutes. That's what, like two, three questions? Yes. When did your parents find out and how did they react to it? Oh, parents. Parents are fun, aren't they? Um, right, so I told my parents straight away that I was going to give up drinking. And they were like, oh, that's nice. Why are you doing that? And I was like, because I just, you know, decided to have a bit of a break. They were like, oh, love, that's lovely. It's really healthy. Well done. I wasn't in the country at the time, right? So they didn't really know what was going on. Um, my sister knew the whole time. And I remember... 
the vicar's wife at that American church had run me through like this like booklet um, of things to like pray on and stuff when you're becoming Christian and and things to renounce, you know, like, I don't know, Ouija boards or something like that. I hadn't done any of that stuff, but she had this sort of list and she was like, I just want to know if there's any of these things and blah, blah, blah. You know, we want you to walk, step in freedom in this new journey. So we just take a little inventory. And she was like, is there anything, you know, like lies or anything that you're hiding that you feel like is really important? And I really felt convicted to call my mum. So I called her and I told her that I had been taking cocaine and she took it okay. She was like, I was 25 at this point. Um, she was definitely upset. Um, but she was proud that I'd done something about it and proud that my sister had been so supportive through that journey. I wrote a letter to my dad because I didn't feel I could tell him face to face. And he, he actually carried it round for nine months before he replied in his top pocket. And then he, he did write back to me. And I think that he found that really difficult as well. There have been other things, though, because I now stand on a stage and talk about this that I've had to warn them of. Um, and I never write out my testimony before I share it. I just let whatever comes out, comes out. So there's loads of different versions of it, loads of different stories that sometimes come up and sometimes don't. And one of the stories is that I woke up with a black eye, which I didn't say earlier, but on the sort of final night before my friend said, go and get yourself sorted, woke up with a black eye. I didn't really know where I got it from. I've been out with that horrible guy who dealt drugs the night before. I, he might have punched me or I might have gotten involved in a fight that he was in. Either way, this is all really gross and horrible, right? Not ideal. Um, and I told her that and she cried. Because I think it's... <sighs> Do you know what? You hear these stories about addiction and you're like... Like one of my friends said it to me. She was like, at least it's a fabulous one. <laughs> you know? It's all Lindsay Lohan and going to rehab. There's nothing fabulous about it. It is disgusting and grimy. It is partying with pimps and prostitutes. It is genuinely the most depraved circumstances, like some of the stuff I've seen, some of the stuff I've heard, it is not just me on my own sitting there doing lines of cocaine and listening to music on my kitchen table. Like the lifestyle that comes hand in hand with that, the desperation, the people you're around is so horrible. And I think that's the moment my mum realized because that's being punched in the face is not the worst thing that happened to me. It's, you know, it's dangerous. It's a really dangerous world to be a part of. And I think that it's one thing to know that your child or someone you care about is taking drugs, but to realize that they were entrenched in it and that there was violence and that there was all kinds of horrible other things around them, that's really hard. So that's been a process. But uh, my mum's Christian and she's really proud of me. Um, so, yeah. Hi. I'll do you and then I'll come back to you and then we're probably done. Actually, I don't think the mic's going to stretch that far, so you might have to come forward. Um, what is there one thing you, you would say to a parent of an addict that would be, if any, something, some piece of advice you would give to a parent of an addict? Yeah, no one's ever gone too far. No one's ever too old or too young or taken too many drugs or drunk too much or watched too much porn to find help. I don't think people have to be Christian in order to get clean and sober, but I wouldn't have wanted to try without it. And I truly believe nothing is too big for God. So, like, hope is the most painful thing in the world. 
in the like in the world when you're waiting for something you care about that much and anyone who has someone they care about who's struggling with an addiction they just don't feel they're getting through like that is agony it is absolutely agonizing but there is a way back it's no one there no one is precluded from that from the love of god and that radical transformation keep praying don't give up and keep going and you know tell me their name and i'll pray too and like we'll we'll never leave a man behind we'll just keep going until it's done right at the back and then i'm going home with a suitcase full of potatoes <laughs> Did I lose many friends or relationships from the man with the Justin Timberlake hair who didn't move forwards for the mic? Good for you. You keep that so far. Um, yeah, I did, but none that I needed. Um, I lost relationships with people who I took drugs with. I lost relationships with people who, um, who just wanted me to be that party girl, who didn't see me for who I was, who didn't value me outside of what I could do for them. And good riddance, quite frankly. Because if you only wanted to hang around with me when I was drinking, then did you really know me at all? You know? And in their place, I have now got, like, I would say the most spectacular group of friends. I don't know what I've done to deserve them. When we celebrated my nine years sobriety, we had a massive pillow fight. Because you don't need alcohol to have fun. And actually you wouldn't want to have a pillow fight with alcohol because that's dangerous. So some things you only get to do when you're sober. And it was, it was just the best day. And um, Rachel can attest this. She's at my house a lot. I've always got a bunch of flowers on my table and I don't buy myself flowers. They love me. They support me. They pray for me. They champion me. I would not switch them back for anything. You know, and actually when you... When you invest in people, when you do good things, when you surround yourself, you know, what is good, kind, praiseworthy, whatever that verse is, I really need to get better at the scripture. I know it, I just don't know it, you know. Um, if you surround yourself with those things, then, then that's what you're surrounded with. And that's the best, you know. It's not that sort of fake fun where you're constantly striving, trying to prove yourself. Actually, it's just like really good, genuine love. Um, and that's it. I'm done. I'm here, though. But I think there is another thing in here. But I'll be here if you have specific questions or stuff that you didn't feel like saying out loud. Um, and thank you so much. And if you do have stuff, then I reply to all not weird messages on Instagram also. So I'm here as well if you want to reach out. Um, because I know that this raises a lot of questions and a lot of thoughts. But you, you don't have to sort of wade through it on your own. I've got plenty of resources, plenty of information. Um, so if there's something going on that you want to talk about, tap me up, genuinely. I'm here to help. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, guys. Thanks. <laughs>